You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello, welcome to episode six of Unfiltered, which features June Sarpong. And well, it occurred to me when I was doing the research for the for the interview and reading her new book, Diversify. Out of everyone that's done Unfiltered so far, I probably know the least about her, which is odd because she's been pretty famous for most of my adult life. And that, I think, will give me the basis of my first question. June Sarpong, thank you for joining me on Unfiltered. You are, unless I've lost count, I'm going to run out of fingers. You are our fifth guest. Yes. And you are, I hope you don't mind me saying, you're the first one that I, I kind of, I know what you do mm. and I know what you have done. But I don't really have a very clear picture of who you are and where and where you came from. Oh. Um, all of which you draw on in, in your new book, Diversify, Six Degrees of Integration, which we will talk about. But uh, mm. it, it is, I mean, even from a cursory reading, it's clear that you draw upon your own past a yes. lot in arriving at the conclusions that you arrive at. So we'll start with your past, yeah. if we may. You were born here, but I your was. parents weren't. Exactly. So uh, I was born in East London, um, but my parents are from Ghana. Um, and I was uh, raised in East London until I was about three. And then the idea was we were going to move back to Ghana. Um, and at the time, there was a new government in and my parents wanted to sort of participate in nation building. Um, and we got back to Ghana. We had a very uh, cushy life. They were part of the elite. Um, we were very wealthy. And then within a year, a coup happened. Um, and so overnight, uh, we went from having everything to nothing. Um, and so we came back to the UK and, uh, fleeing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my earliest memories is of armed militia, uh, breaking into our home in the middle of the night. So, yeah. So we because fled. Because your parents were politically active or just yeah. because well, they were wealthy? Because or? Both. Because my uh, parents were wealthy. Um, and my dad, uh, was supportive of the then government. Um, and uh, so, yes, they broke into our home. My dad somehow managed to convince them uh, that he would go to our family safe and bring the money back and they should come back, and they actually did. Right. Um, and we left. We left in the middle of the night um, and fled, came back to the UK and ended up in a council estate in East London. And so, what yeah. was that like? I mean, you're well, too young to make too much of a comparison. Well, yeah, for me, I mean, I was four at the time, but my for my mother, it was a very hard adjustment. You know, she'd gone from privilege to handouts, and mm. they were very proud people. So that was not who they wanted to be. Um, but I think when something like that happens to you, it makes you really um, value the rule of law and also really appreciate the little things. You know, I you know I know what it feels like to have nothing, um, and I've been lucky enough to you know have a decent career, so I know what it feels like to have stuff too. So yes. yeah, gratitude. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And your dad didn't stay in no. East mm -mm. London. No, 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 no. So they uh, broke up uh, within. Probably within, but yeah, by the time I was seven, they got divorced. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, very much so, very much so. And um, my dad uh, moved to America, and you know, for him back then, you know, as an African man, an educated African man, um, it was near impossible for him to find a job uh, that was the equivalent of his education. You know, the, 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 this, there was an unspoken rule that uh, immigrants from the colonies 
wooden uh, sort of parachute into middle class jobs. They drive buses. Drive buses. And clean tube trains. Clean tube trains, exactly. And if and the women could be nurses, you know. Yes. And my mother was a nurse. Was she? <laughs> yeah. She qualified before she came here. <laughs> exactly. So she could slot yeah, into British she life. Could slot and, in. and feel to a degree yes, valued and respected exactly, that your dad couldn't. But the men couldn't, okay. not at all. Um and so my dad moved to America uh and uh was able through a lot of hard work and many obstacles, it yes. was not easy, uh, but able to build quite a decent um, living and create a good standard of living for himself. You didn't feel abandoned? Do you know, it's so funny, you know, now as a grown woman, um, possibly, yes, I think so. But at the time, you know, with African communities, it's very much a sort of uh, it takes a village to raise a child mentality. Anyway, we don't put a focus on the nuclear family in okay. the same way. Not at all. Um, and so everybody got involved. So all my aunts and my uncles and, you know, my grandparents. So we just got on with it. But now as an adult, uh, definitely, I, I would not want that for my own family. God, no. Um, but you know what? They made the most of best they could do with a bad of a bad situation so yeah and did you flit did you go see your dad much? yes right. so all my summers were spent in america so since the age of seven i've spent more or less every summer in la okay yeah so, i mean the whole world has been on a bit of a crash course in in, in race relations and politics yeah. over the last couple of years yeah. i would have thought mm -hmm. even even in the 70s i would have thought that america was more racist than britain See, it's so funny you say that because it's different. Yeah. So I think what we do much better over here, James, is we're much better in terms of how we integrate as people. Um, obviously, we've still got a long way to go, but, you know, we intermarry, we have friends from different uh, backgrounds and so forth. That we do well. But what we don't do well is uh, uh, opportunity. Um, and also the sort of progression pipeline. And I think that's what America does so much better. So America has terrible relations in terms of how people integrate with one another. But in the corporate world, if you look at their data versus ours, they are way ahead in terms of opportunity for people of colour or from people from uh, low-income backgrounds. So you might be able to breach a boardroom, but you wouldn't necessarily... Be friends with, with your neighbours. Exactly. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And was so that your dad's experience? Yeah. Well, you see, my dad's very charismatic. So my dad's one of those people who will make friends wherever he goes. Mm. Um, so for them, they have a very uh, ethnically diverse group of friends. That's just their life. Um, but definitely in terms of uh, opportunities, what was possible for him in America certainly wouldn't have been possible over here. That fascinates me. Yeah, no I way. I had no idea. Yeah. So you've all, have you always been plugged into that? side of socio-political. Yeah, very much so. And also having spent so much time in America, I really do understand it from both perspectives and see what we do well and the same there and vice versa, for sure. And each could learn something from definitely, the other. Definitely, definitely. So back to Walthamstow. Yeah, he's 17. He's <laughs> <laughs> Presumably your paths crossed at subsequent points. Yeah, I did. I know those boys very well. <laughs> talk, 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 talk to me about that. Because, I mean, you, you, you make a point in the book about the diversity you experienced growing up. It's wonderful. The word I'd use is commonplace. Yeah. Because in a way, it, it's portrayed as extraordinary yeah, but it was just by others. But to us. you, it, this is just life. Totally. This is... And, you know, it was wonderful. My school was so ethnically diverse. Um, I grew up in a very white working class community. Um, and that community 
I would say is probably the community that I feel most at home with. You know, what do you mean when you say working class? I know what white means. But, yeah, but so what, what? so working class in that you know. So no university education. No university educated education. Low income. Uh, low income, but aspirational and community minded. And community minded, totally. EastEnders. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, okay. that is what I grew up around, um, and that community. These were sort of. Uh, uh, survivors of the Second World War, proud um, citizens, um, really family orientated, and they really looked out for my family. You know, my mother, when my dad moved to America, mm. my mum was a single mom and she was working. And it was our neighbours that looked after us when we came home from school. You know, that, that was, and we were on a very rough council estate, but the community was so close. And I think for me, I'm so grateful to have had that um, foundation and that grounding because what it did was it made me feel part of something. Okay. Yeah, and not feel like an outsider. Did you never? No, because that's what was beautiful about East London then. I mm. think it's very different now. Mm. I think it's much more because what's happened in Walthamstow is you've got the gentrification um, and then you've got a lot of the sort of original community that have moved out. So you have the sort of new influx of wealthier residents. You have uh, a new influx of immigrants um, from communities, uh, sort of Somalian background uh, um, and and. Um, a new influx of Pakistani um, residents. And there hasn't been that same mixing that was there when I was growing up. Because and because there's no commonality. No, there's no, no. Whereas there certainly was uh, when I was a child. So I'm so grateful to have experienced that. And as a result, that's what made me uh, very comfortable with people from all walks of life. And also because my school was the best school in the area, we had a lot of the sort of middle class do-gooders mm. that didn't want to send their kids to private school. So again, it was a real sort of mix um, socioeconomically as well. So you, you, um, you've always felt like you fitted in then since, yeah. since those days? Yeah. Oh, totally. A lot of journalists, a lot of politically active people feel like outsiders. No, no, never felt like an outsider. Have you ever felt Ghanaian? Yes, you do. So you've got you've got what two identities? Yeah, you will not meet a Ghanaian who doesn't feel Ghanaian. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Ghanaian culture is so all encompassing. So you know, when you marry somebody as a child, usually you're whatever your mother is. So you Mm. know, your mum's Irish, you're Irish, and you know, you're a bit of what your dad is, but really, you're what your mum is. I would say Ghanaian culture is one of the only cultures that if you marry a Ghanaian, you're Ghanaian. Straight away. Straight away. Whoever it is. There's Ghanaian, the kids are Ghanaian, everyone's Ghanaian. So, yeah, I definitely feel... Do you know, it it, it occurs to me listening to you that that we've... And I've fallen into this trap, even even though I am a middle-class do-gooder. Hello! (laughs) Do your kids go to... No, they don't, they don't, actually, as as it goes. I'm happy to to worship at that altar. Yes. But but the idea of having... I don't want the word identity. Being lots of different things has kind of become unfashionable. It's as if the the tribalism of the last couple of years has forced us to identify as Uh, being 100%, quite a binary classification. You're the opposite. Yeah, no, I'm all for pluralism. I will not buy into that. I feel feel that I have multiple identities. Definitely I'm connected to my Ghanaian heritage, but I'm so fundamentally British and also... Such an East Londoner, you know. I also really identify. It's not complicated when you it's put not, it like no, that. No, it's not. <laughs> it really isn't. Yeah, you know, I identify with the area and the community that I grew up in. 
for sure. The, the, there's, a, I suppose, when you say that, the three strands, you're going to find pride in things as well, yes. in, all, in, all, in all three of those. Mm. If, if Walthamstow had seen an influx of 30,000 Ghanaian emigres, mm. it's possible the reception you received wouldn't have been so warm. It's funny, and I, I, again, uh, that's... It's never been put to me like that. I really like that um, example. I I think it might have... No, I think it probably would have still received a similar response in the sense that I think when you look at the issues that we have in certain communities in terms of cohesion and, mm. and, and integration, a lot of those communities um, come from countries that weren't necessarily... Um, uh, colonized by Britain or even if they were um, they kept their identity um, really at the foreground of who they are so the interesting thing why I think the Caribbean immigrants and the uh, West African immigrants were able to integrate so well was they were former British colonies so majority of those people spoke English so there was no even if my parents had a thick accent their neighbours could understand them. So there was a way to communicate. Also, they had um, studied uh, the British curriculum. Yes. Um, they felt very much connected to the mother country, which was what Britain was seen as. Um, so you had a lot of common references. And I think that really helped. And so what we have now is, if you look at particularly Muslim countries, Muslim, a lot of Muslim countries weren't necessarily uh, uh, colonised by Britain. And even if they were, most of them still kept their names, Mm. uh, kept their language and so on. And so what's happened is you have those communities that have come and it's been harder to integrate. But it's not impossible. And what you need is you need sort of a willingness from both sides. But I do think it was easier. And you you highlight perhaps why that word multiculturalism is so confusing to so many people. Because Mm -hmm. in a way, there's good and bad. No. So the bad multiculturalism is where there is a form of apartheid in yeah. place. So it's self-imposed yes. apartheid self-imposed, from both sides yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. Good multiculturalism is, mm. but but it's, well, we integrate. Yeah, but yeah. but easier to do if you've come from yeah a post-imperial for sure. Easier to do if there are a few common reference points yeah. and language. Sure, really it's the biggest is, is of all. The biggest of all. So when you arrived at school in mm. Walthamstow, yeah. Again, you, 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 you sailed straight in. You yeah. fitted straight in. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, I was I when. I was five, four or five when um, we came back. Um, And so I hadn't been in Ghana long enough to be fully Ghana. And I still had an English accent. Um, And so, yes, I slotted in perfectly well. Again, never felt like an outsider. I always just felt part of that community. Mm. Um, And also what was interesting was our school or our area you had all of your own sort of individual identity, but then there was the identity of the area, which was proudly East London and proudly Cockney. Yes. And and all of those um, things that just sort of joined us together. And yeah. and, 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 and battles any sense of, of dislocation or any yeah. sense of invasion mm-hmm. from, from Indigenous people. Yes, if, if, totally. If sort of... Celebrating the same yeah, thing. Yeah, you know, our neighbours would come over and have some of our African food, and you know, it's important. This, isn't it, yeah. to, to understanding why you wanted to write this book? Actually, yeah. I think yeah. this notion. I mean, the the, the yeah. notion of integration being a, a an evolutionary process totally. almost. Yeah. Were you good at school? Were you strong at school? I was. Um, I would say <laughs> it's 
funny. My report card throughout my whole time at school was very uh, hardworking, uh, but must listen more and talks too much. <laughs> <laughs> I think people probably still say that now. <laughs> no, I'm sure they don't. You're not talking enough. <laughs> Sorry. What would your teachers have said? I mean, when did ambition, when do you remember ambitions developing? The first thing you wanted to be. I don't know if I was an ambitious kid. I don't think I was, actually. Because you're very um, driven now. Yeah, I'm driven now, but I wasn't driven then. I think it'd be interesting to to see what what it was for you. See, I, I think ambition developed in me when I uh, did work experience at 16 at KISS FM mm. and saw that there was this other world and that there were people who had the kind of life that I wanted to have and who were doing things that I wanted to do. And so that's what sort of created an ambition in me. But I don't think I had ambition before. So you, had, you, had, you, had, you got to look through the sweet shop window. Yes. Essentially. Yes. And I thought, oh, those sweets look good. So, yeah. But, yeah, so I was never the kid that was like really driven and no, 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 no. It was definitely actually being put in a working environment that kind of environment that I wanted to one day be part of and then seeing a clear pathway to that and that's what sort of developed ambition in me I, I can't remember no I can't, no I can't remember what it was I know what it is now now it's fear of, of, of annihilation and not being able to support the family that's where my really? ambition yeah that's where my ambition comes from now but when I was that age when I was 16 I think I was just a an idiot show off who wanted to <laughs> be Kenneth Branner or Prime Minister. One or the other would the have been... time. <laughs> it's just, it's just the new moustache that Branner's got. But I, I, that really surprises me because I, I don't say this the wrong way, mm. I would have marked you down as, as one of the people who had a master plan oh, at no. 15, 16. Oh. But largely because you achieved success so young, which I think those of us who didn't find it a little bit hard to believe that it happened by accident. You must have had a master plan because you were on telly when you were barely out of your teens. <laughs> no, it's called being, which is why, honestly, James, this is why social mobility mm. means so much to me because it really was just being in the right place at the right time and being given an opportunity. Serendipity. Um, yeah. And had, had I not gotten that work experience placement, I have no idea what my life would be like now because it completely changed the trajectory of my life. Sliding doors. Moment. Yeah, really. What, how did you get it? What was the... It's the funniest thing. So, um, so like I said, the, the middle class do-gooders, yeah. you and your friends who, <laughs> <laughs> who sent their kids to my school. Um, so our PTA uh, was really strong and uh, had very good corporate links. So our work experience placement for my school was phenomenal. It wow. would match that of any um, private school, no question. Um, and so one of the mums had a link to KISS FM. So work experience at KISS FM was, was on offer. And I um, put my name down for it, as did my friend. And then we both put our name down for London Contemporary Dance. And uh, we had to pick our names out of a hat because we both had the same choice. And she got London Contemporary Dance and I got Kiss FM. What's she doing now? I have no Oh, I heard she was at Butlins. Really? She was a Redcoat. What, Redcoat? now? Yeah, yeah. Great. She's a Redcoat. Well, yeah. Contemporary Dance of sorts. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Nob Nobbly knees, that kind of thing. That's under underrated. She's very Butlins. flexible. I'm sure she's a great Redcoat. <laughs> so, so that's 16. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly you think... Ah, and oh, okay. I'm like, wow. 
And imagine this was when Kiss had just become legal. So mm. I think it was like a year into um, them having their license. And so everybody was there. This was like the heyday when all of the DJs from Tongi, uh, Trevor Nelson, Judge Jules, all of them that were there. And imagine me as a 16-year-old kid around all of that. It was amazing. I can't imagine it. Yeah. What, what did you do? I mean, are you uh, well, I was socially confident? Yeah, but you, you um, can talk I, to people. Yes, yes. So one thing I've always had, and again, I, I get that from my dad, was I, I've always been good with people. I like people. Yes. I'm one of those people who actually do like people. So talking to people was never an issue for me. And I think because I didn't know who any of them were, it meant that I wasn't intimidated or nervous. I mean, had I known who they were, probably not. Um, and they kind of took me under their wing because I was the youngest member of the team. They all looked after me. And in fact, my MTV job came from Trevor Nelson. He put my name forward. So, yeah, yeah. That's just sort of the lining of the planets. Mm. So, the, so the work experience led into... Yes, so work, so work experience and I went to do my A-levels. Um, and then when I finished my A-levels, I was going to go to university... And Kiss offered me a permanent job. And my mother, uh, much to her annoyance and then the annoyance of my African family, because obviously with Ghanaians, education yes. is everything. Um, they called a family meeting. You are bringing shame on this family. What do you mean? Uh, what's this nonsense? I'm talking on radio. <laughs> a band man. And so in, back then, you know, it's so funny when I see people like Stormzy and all of those yeah. guys now, who now their parents are proud that they're, you know, rappers or whatever. Sure. In my day, that was like the worst thing you could be, a bandsman. So, um, so anyway, so my dad was the only one who stood by me and he said, I'm going to give you a year. And if this nonsense doesn't work out, you're going to university. So I thought, well, I better make it work. And yeah, luckily, um, within a year I was on air. Uh, and then once I was on air, my mum was like, oh, yes, I told her, follow her dreams. <laughs> it was my idea. <laughs> Proud as you like, though. Yeah. As soon as. Exactly. Well, why is that? Is that because she could sort of boast about it? Exactly, because then she could show off to her friends. Oh, make sure you tune in on Saturday at 10 a.m. <laughs> and was that, so when you did the work experience, it was getting on air that was the was the seed that was sown? Yeah. You thought, I yeah. wanted, why? Definitely. Why? So it was two things. So I had a very, bad car accident um before my work experience this was which was kiss was so lovely so i had this terrible car accident didn't walk for over a year it was awful and uh kiss kept the work experience placement open for me until i got better and so once i recovered i still had this big old neck brace um they then allowed me to come in and do the placement And so in the time I was in hospital, I used to watch TV all the time and I saw Oprah Winfrey and I was like, oh my God, wow, you can be paid to talk. I want to do that one day. Um, And so then once I got to Kiss FM, that seed had been planted in my head from Oprah, but I never thought I could actually do it. Mm. You know, it was just like, I'd like to do it. Never thought. Then once I got to Kiss and saw there were people doing it, then I was like, actually, this is possible. So it just sort of kind of... Yeah, but yeah. Sort of. You haven't mentioned then. music. Yeah, the music was the bomb. <laughs> well, but was it important to you? Yeah. Or was that just a means to an end? No. So you... Oh man, do you know what? the music then? It was just heaven. So what year was this? We're talking like early two thousand, sort of like two thousand and one or okay. so. Yeah. So the music scene. So if you imagine, this is when. All of the acid jazz was bubbling. So JK, Soul to Soul, all of those guys would be coming into the studio. Um, then you had sort of the American scene. 
you know, a few years later, all Britpop. So it was such an amazing time to be in the music industry back then. And it was all British. And it's funny, I suppose, with what's going on now, where you've got, you know, the sort of the new lot, like the rudimentals and all of those mm. guys, it's happening again. But I think I was at the sort of heart of it the first go round. And it was in terms of the more modern stuff. So, yeah, it was just amazing. The music uh, was so good. And then to telly. Yeah, thanks to Trevor Trelly. Nelson. Thanks to Trev. It's not a bad little sort of recommendation. Yeah, to have. good old Trev. Do yeah. you have the look at me, Gene? And I mean, do you have that? I've asked almost all the guests on Unfiltered this because we started with Russell yeah. Brand, who has yeah, I love probably the most overdeveloped look at me, Gene, in the history yeah. of humanity <laughs> by his own admission. You know, I worked with him back at MTV. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just before he got fired for coming he, to work dressed as Osama bin Laden. And also he was still very much, really, he was still on drugs. Yes, he's very honest yeah. about it himself. Mm. But but that, that notion of needing the approbation of an audience, you, do, do you have that? No. It's an no. odd business to end up in then, really. No. I don't have the look at me gene at all. I have the um, I like people gene. Yeah. So I think... I think it's twofold, isn't it? You either do this job because you have the look at me gene mm. or you have the I like people, I'm interested in people gene. Communicate. Yeah, I what? think you've got the I'm interested in people gene. Yeah, I've got the look at me gene as well. Do you really? I, I think so, yeah. You don't seem like you've got the look at me gene. You hide kind. it well. Yeah. Uh, well. Maybe it diminishes as you get older and, and the, your priorities change slightly. Okay. But, but you never had it at all. I don't think so. I don't think so. And then you became proper famous at... What, early 20s? No, 19, 19. 18, 19, yeah. Do you remember the first time you got recognised in the street? No. Not at all? <laughs> no. But then very quickly it was happening a lot. Yeah, then it was happening all the time. And also because I suppose it was of a generation, wasn't it? So Yes, very it, much you know, so. We were sort of the, the faces of Generation X. Mm. So my whole group of contemporaries, so myself, Russell, Kat Dealey, uh all of us, we all started at MTV at the same time. Um, so, yeah, it was a fun time to be there. And was it, is it fun being famous? Do you like that or is it? Well, I, I, well, see, I think I, I don't consider myself famous. I think I kind of have a sort of, um, in the sense that I'm known to people who know what I do. And I think when I was younger, I was much more famous in the sense of when I did T4. Mm. But I don't think I'm, I wouldn't say I'm famous now. I would say I'm known to people who know what I do. I think it's different. It's definitely changed. And I quite like it. Prefer it now? Um, do you know, it's so weird. I don't mind either way. Fair like enough. when I was in America, no but, one Because knew. you don't need it. No, yeah, really don't. So when I was in America, no one knew who I was. So that made no difference to me. And I mean, you're quite honest about this in the book yourself, because you went to America for work. Mm. Nobody knew who you were. And mm. it, sort of reading between the lines of what you've written yourself, not that many people knew who you were. No, when, you left when I left, no, exactly. <laughs> 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 so it didn't, it didn't go brilliantly. No, it didn't go bad. It didn't no, go brilliantly. Sure. No, no. So that was that was okay. the, that was the Oprah yeah. bid, was it? That was yeah. when you were in your heart of hearts. You'd have been hoping to get that sort of show. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So so the idea for me was, uh, but I tell you what, it did do. So I went to America, like all British talent, holy grail, cracking America, mm. and. Um, no, I didn't crack America. But what I did do, and and why I'm so grateful, is um, I got to experience the American dream. And I think that really helped me in terms of confidence levels. In the sense that 
you know, growing up in the UK, I do think because of our class system, um, there's very much a sort of know your place mentality if you are from uh, uh, a less privileged background. So even if you're confident and blah, 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 it's still in the back of your head. Yeah. And I think what America did for me was it helped me push through that. And I think when I speak to a lot of other British people who've gone and moved to America who are not from privileged backgrounds, they say the same thing. That's really interesting because mm. it, 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 for me, it's only since Brexit that I've seen the the forelock tugging mm. mentality of, of British people. The, yeah. the you know, well, we won't trust experts, yeah. which is kind oh of understandable. Oh it's not ideal, especially if you're poorly. <laughs> yeah. But but equally, that kind of it's not our place. Mm. They, like, Jacob Rees-Mogg being a great example of, yes. of someone who. Really, yeah. if he spoke in a broad Yorkshire yeah, accent, no one would be listening. They'd be laughing be at laughing him, but because he has this, yeah, be ridiculing is, those views. Yes, yeah. precisely yeah. that. They'd be calling him xenophobic, all sorts. Yeah, but well, you can. I, I don't know. If feel sorry is quite the right phrase, but I sometimes think that Nick Griffin must sit looking at the television, and looking at <laughs> people like Farage and Reese Mogg, going, "What the hell what did the I hell do wrong? Yeah. This is so unfair." Exactly. I've nicked my act, but he still went to Oxford as well. He, I mean, he he's did. Like, That's yes. not enough. No, no, exactly. Well, but maybe that was his mistake. Actually, academic training. So he knew deep down that he had to try to explain himself, whereas <laughs> the people profiting at the moment are the people don't who care, don't. Exactly. It, and that is uniquely British. Yes. Because even is. in continental Europe, you still have old privileged families, but mm. you don't have public schools. No. Right? You don't have. No, 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 no. Not that. in the same way. No. And and also, what we have here is a real sort of clear pipeline to yes. a certain sector of society, isn't it? Or se section in society. So it's very clear. You go to private school, you go to a Russell Group University, and then you end up with the best white-collar jobs. That's mm. it. Mm. And if you deviate from that in any way, shape, or form, then you're not really properly accepted once you get into that job, even if you have that job. And so I think the wonderful thing about America, what it did for me, was it sort of etched some of that out of me. And all of this explains how you've ended up writing a, a, a hefty tome <laughs> yeah. of a book that blends yeah. academic or academia yes. with autobiography. Yes, I, I but mean, sort of, yes. Yeah, but yeah. I, 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 you, what I mean by that is... I use my own personal experience. To, to, yeah. As a lens through which to examine Yeah, definitely. Universal. And it's very accessible, very accessible. You know, I'm not an academic. So what I was very clear about with the Oxford team was I wanted to be able to understand it. I Go back a bit further, if you would, because yeah. how do you end up with an Oxford team? So talk me through the yeah. gen genesis of the project. Yeah, sure. So, so basically what happened to me, like I said, you know, went to America to try and crack America. Mm. Uh, didn't crack her this little den east and west coast <laughs> scrap <laughs> yeah scrap on the east coast <laughs> so while I was scrapping in the west coast I was filming in Las Vegas and this young guy appeared on set James who was covered head to toe in tattoos and what I uh, made the assumption of as being gang markings I sure. had no idea yeah. no evidence of that yeah. that's, that's the assumption that I came to and I felt really uncomfortable around him and nervous and awkward. And if I'm honest, I was scared of him and intimidated by him. And in that moment, I thought, oh, my goodness, that's what this is. You know, that's what otherizing 
is. And, you know, as a woman of colour, I've only ever looked at this issue from being on the receiving end as opposed to doing it mm. and as opposed to having my own unconscious biases and, and sort of hidden prejudices. So this is that moment in Crash where... The... Yes, uh, yes, where it all comes full circle and Bingo. they all realise, yeah, yeah, that okay. was my Crash moment. Oh, yeah. I like that. Can I steal that? You can have it. Yes, yeah, so my too. Crash moment. Thanks, James. And so I was like, oh, my God, that's it. That's it. That's it. Oh, wow. And I thought to myself, wow, what hope has that child got if even I'm feeling funny around him? So anyway, I went to speak to him and yes, he'd had a difficult life. But luckily, our sound man, who wasn't um, as uh, limiting in his thinking as I was, had taken him on as an apprentice. And so this kid was really excited at the prospect of a career working in sound and working in television. I just thought, oh, this is going to be hard mm. because he's going to come up against this everywhere every he, he goes, every time he walks into a room. And so I thought, wow, I'd love to somehow start a conversation around this. And this was pre-Brexit, pre-Trump. Mm. Um, and then what happened was uh, uh, Caroline Michelle, uh, who's a literary agent, is an old friend of mine, and this is when uh, Lean In, Sheryl Sandberg book had just come out, and she called me and she said, oh, June, you should do the multicultural lean-in. <laughs> Back to that word. Yeah. And I said to her, you know, it's funny, a few years ago this uh, this incident happened uh, in Vegas and I've always wanted to talk about it. And I was thinking maybe a documentary or whatever, mm. but I've never known what. And she said, I think you should write about it. And so that's how this started. Um, and then what I really wanted to do was look at disenfranchised groups but present the data and the research around those groups and also to present the data on how things could be if we made certain changes. Yes. And um, over the years, you know, like you, I've interviewed a lot of people and you just get to know a lot of people. So um, I knew uh, Iqbal Wahab, who's very successful in businessman in London, um, and he had done a lot of work with Nuffield College, right. uh, Oxford, on social mobility. And so he connected me with them. Um, and they straight away said yes. Um, and then the same uh, with the LSE. Um, and they said yes. And, and that's how it all came about. So with Oxford, the research was sort of maybe two years worth of research. And LSE is about so that's, a year. So that's the hot... <clears throat> The hard numbers, excuse yeah, that's me, because right, right, you want to know the percentages. Twelve yeah. percent of solicitors come exactly. from working class backgrounds. Yeah. Women earn fourteen percent less yeah. than men. One mm-hmm. in sixteen top management positions held by, by an ethnic minority yeah. person. The line you wrote when you met that—that because that, the, the, the man with the tattoos becomes the springboard for the whole project. Mm. You've explained. It's a great line. This. I was prepared to pretend he wasn't there, yeah. so I could feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. So we don't yeah. just do that with people. We do that yeah. with all of the issues raised all in the, the book issues. as well. We yeah. pretend, yeah. It's, I mean, Black Lives yeah. Matter, we pretend there isn't. Yeah, just so we like, can feel comfortable. Yeah. And you know what made us, and particularly in London, which is why I must say I, I love your radio show as well, Thank because you. you're so honest. And you and what I you love about... You can fake that, you can fake anything. <laughs> <You're silly>. <laughs> <laughs> and what I love about what you do with your show is you present the facts in a way that doesn't belittle the other person on the end of the phone. And I think it's so important because that's how you change hearts and minds. Mm. And also you don't allow anybody to get away with falsehoods either. So you're very firm with them, but you're respectful and compassionate of where somebody's coming from. No, you really are. You really are. And I think stuff like Grenfell 
no longer allows us the luxury of ignorance. Mm. That's what Grenville did. Mm. Grenville, you can't pretend you don't know anymore because mm. that symbol is there any time you drive over the flyover. Mm. It's right there. And I think really that sort of, that British, and we do it better than anyone else, that sort of British way of avoiding anything uncomfortable and difficult can't stand anymore. It, it, it's true. And, and the... The otherness, which is mm. the kind of runs through the whole book, like mm. Blackpool through a stick of rock. Mm. Is it any demographic you write that's excluded socially, politically, or economically mm. because of their difference from the dominant social groups in yeah. society? What's weird about Britain at the moment um, is there's not a great deal of agreement on who the dominant social groups in society are at the moment. Because when people talk about the elites, people who've been to Eton. Mm. And, and talk about <laughs> metropolitan elites somehow the subverting. Yes, I know. It, it, it's funny. I was on a show the other day with Quentin Letts, and he's hilarious. And I actually like Quentin as a person. I don't agree with many of his views, but I like him as a person. And he was saying, you know, his whole book is about attacking the elites. And I said, Quentin, are you trying to tell me you are not part of the elite? He said. Well, I sort of am. I said, yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, employed, employed by a Viking. <laughs> Went to a minor public school. It's there not, you go. It, it's an odd one, that, isn't it? Elites is a fascinating word because it does, it, it kind of plays whatever part you want it to play. It does, but I think there's also the fact that you cannot get away from what the data shows you if we go back to Which social mobility. Which is why mobility. facts have to yes, be the starting point exactly. For this. It has to be. So if we know that you know only 4% of doctors, doctors are from yeah. a working class, Class background, that means 96% of them are not. There you have it. That's what I consider to be elite. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> access. And yeah, so actually, access. A lot of the people yeah. calling each other yeah. elites are both yeah. right. Yes. They, they are both part of the elite. Yeah, they just hate exactly. each other so much. Yes, they can't, exactly. They can't recognise like <laughs> what they have in common. <laughs> exactly. So, I often I wonder sometimes whether or not everybody that needs to read a book like this is perhaps by definition the person that won't. Well, the appetite to learn more about this sort of thing, the world view that that needs to be slightly well, I think it's different. Challenged. I think it's different entry points, isn't yes, it? Yes, of course. Yeah, so I think you know, again, back to your show and this show as mm. well. Um, I think the wonderful thing about your show um, uh, and obviously this show too is you are able to access people who may not, you know, some of your viewers, listeners obviously yes. will, of course, read this book, um, and some of them might not. And I think it's it's about different entry points. So the book captures a certain audience, then, you know, um, next year we're going to do a documentary. That would capture oh, yeah. a different audience. So it's a project. It's a project. For me, this is a, it's a real passion. And I think I hope what I can do uh, is help ignite conversations between people who normally wouldn't connect or wouldn't normally connect in an honest way, in an authentic way. Which is also part one of the one of the six degrees of integration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, 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 talk, yes. talk us through what, what yeah, that involves. Yeah, so there's six very simple steps on how you better connect. And this is your own conclusions. This yeah. is your thesis, yeah, yeah. as it yes, were, after totally. going... Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I sort of use um, the 12th step as an example. So um, I'm teetotal, always have been. But most How come? Of, do you know what? Everyone always asks. I'm, I am Christian, sure. but I, it's not for that. Um, but you're, I allowed, you're allowed to drink. And, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's the of it. Wine is everything. It's not wine. Wine is the blood of Christ. <laughs> but my family just didn't particularly drink. Sure. So I didn't grow up in a household that 
had much alcohol in it. So, so yeah. I never got the taste. No. And, so but, back, backstage at all those gigs back in the day and, and not no, indulging in any of the... Not, uh, and there was all sorts going on backstage. That's why you can me. remember it. That's why I can remember it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why when people see me, they're like, oh, yeah. what did I do? <laughs> I'll tell you. Um, and so, yeah, never have done. But most of, and obviously working in entertainment, most of my friends are AA. Right. Um, and so when I moved to L.A., I would uh, go to AA meetings with my mates. Um, and I found it Why? fascinating. Just out of interest. Well, one day I was meeting one for lunch yeah. and I arrived early and she was like, I've got a meeting. I thought, what's the meeting? And she was like, you know, my AA yeah. meeting. Do you want to come? And I was like, sure. And she said, well, they don't let outsiders in. And I was like, what's an outsider? Someone who's not got, in recovery. Yeah. So she said, so you're going to have to pretend you're in recovery. I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> so I went in and I found it fascinating. I think the reason it's so successful is there are sort of three elements that make it so powerful. First is uh, it's completely judgment-free because everybody has been on their knees at some point. So there is no judgment, regardless of what you've done, regardless of how bad it may seem or how bad it has been or will be, there's no judgment. Two, you have your individual sponsor that holds you to account. And then three, you have the community. Right. And I think those three elements mean that long-lasting change is possible because even when you sort of slip back and revert back to your old way you're allowed back into the fold it's judgment free but somebody will hold you to account and then the community supports you and so I found it fascinating because it was a real uh, microcosm of society and one of the only places I've ever been to in life where there's no hierarchy and in particular in LA I mean in you know if you're in a, a AA group that's predominantly a wealthy area or predominantly uh, a poor area. Maybe most of the people there are the same. But the interesting thing with LA is because you have the wealthiest people on the planet, literally Mm. side by side with the poorest, that's what you have in their AA meetings. And so you have these sort of movie moguls next to the mother who's just come out of jail for selling crack and everybody's together and somehow they find common ground and I just found it just a sort of fascinating case study. And I think what's interesting about that is it shows it can be done and it's a shame that it's pain that gets them there. But so that's why I wanted to sort of model the 12 step and then apply it to what we can do as individuals to better connect with the other. So it's really simple. To be better people. To be, And also to understand, not necessarily how to be better people, but to better connect with somebody who may seem different to you. So it represents evidence that mm. with the right support, yeah. you can make meaningful changes to, to, to your kind of, almost your social DNA. Totally, totally. And, you know, think about it. Think of how powerful addiction is. Yes. So to give up addiction... And, and for it to be sustainable, whatever that mechanism that allows you to do that has to be so powerful. It has to be more powerful than the addiction. Well, and there aren't many things in life that are. Was there always, when you started the research, mm. was there always a goal that you wanted to come up with a formula, with a with a key to unlock these problems? And that's yes. why you were doing it. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. And this oh. is the key. And this, this is, is the, the formula. key, yeah. I always did. I always did. I always... 
I always, because I suppose with the job that we do, you figure out how to connect with anyone from anywhere. And, yes. and you might not even be able to articulate what that is, but you're able to meet somebody and in the space of a matter of seconds, find some way of connecting and finding common ground. Mm. And I wanted to figure out how can you sort of give people those steps that we do every day as part of our job for their everyday life. Because luckily with, with our job, you, you you are forever meeting people from different walks of life. So you have to know how to do it it's sort of innately. Yes. And how, how do you help other people And this that? this then becomes like teaching someone how to ride a yeah, bike. Yeah. Something totally. that may come naturally to yes. you. You think. And so yeah. let's talk through what they are. Yeah. Um, challenge your ism. Yes. And we all have them. Um, and uh, the real fun part. So the Oxford team came up with a, a set of questions. Uh, and we have a thing called the ism calculator that you can go on the website, which yeah. is diversify.org, um, and actually calculate your ism <laughs> and figure out, you know, where you're People getting. are going to be surprised by that. They, they are. They are. Well, I'm even mine. I was like, oh, dear. What I've got some yours? work to do. I think I, I was at 42% or something, 42%. Okay. So it's not bad, but it's not sure. great. No, no. Sure. And mine, I would say my sort of isms, definitely around the area of politics. So we've got a section mm. which is all about um, sort of political leanings and views. And I'm definitely very uh, intolerant of intolerance. And I think there's an arrogance that comes from that our sort of liberal thinking um, that we need to look at. This is the follow 10 people on social media from yeah. a newspaper that you would never ordinarily <laughs> yeah. I, does, didn't, doesn't, I do that every day. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> it, it entrenches my ism. The more, the more exposed I am yeah. to, to these people, the more convinced I am that they're all bovine bigots. But that's my, I need to work on that perhaps because yeah. they can't. I mean, they somewhere deep down, there'll Most be, a, good there'll be an area. Yeah. How, how do you challenge your ism there? Simply by exposing yourself yeah. to, to, the, to the thing that you fear. That you fear. And keep on judging, not judging, keep on challenging yourself to, to move beyond whatever your resistance is. So the first thing is to be aware of it and then ask yourself why. What is, what is the belief that is causing that resistance? And then how do you move through that? And then the second um, step is to check your circle. This is your social circle. Yeah, and I think this one is really important. You know, if all the people that you associate with or have the choice to associate with uh, think like you do, look like you do, speak like you do, chances are you're going to have a narrow viewpoint, even if you think you don't. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's from having diverse people in your life that you're able to feel truly comfortable with it. So a lot of the time we don't even realise, you know, we just think, oh, most of my friends are like me. Even if you have ethnically diverse friends, most of them are still from a similar background. Yes. Or, or they've arrived at a similar oh, place. Or they've arrived at a similar place, precisely. So you have similar yeah. priorities, mm -hmm. similar worldview. When did you first start noticing difference? Um, I think I started noticing... Well, I think when you're... Um, I think when you are... Uh, of colour, you notice difference earlier than other people yes. because at some point it's brought up. So I think it's probably the first time I was called some sort of racial slur in the playground, mm. um, which I think probably was about seven or eight. Um, and then going back home to my mum and saying, what is this? I was called, I can't remember what it would have been. Sure. But yeah, so that's when I would have started noticing difference. But then I, but then I 
found that I tended to like difference too. Sure. Yeah. I, I just, I, when you check your circle, mm. that there's a slight, and it doesn't come across in the book, it just comes mm. across as I look at my notes. Mm. Yeah, it, it's a little bit militant, whereas I will now go out and try and find a... <laughs> A veiled Muslim woman yeah. with a with a broad Lancashire accent because I, 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 I need a friend like you. I would say that's not a bad thing. <laughs> I would say good, good, good. good and you're lovely. right, of course, yeah. because then you understand exactly. that. Perhaps is why people sometimes the the big surprises in media like like Nadia Hussain on mm. Bake Off because there's a genuine joy in discovering yeah. what you have in common with yeah. someone that you might previously have presumed yeah. you had nothing in common with. Totally, and you, you could call it humanity. Human- <laughs> How about that? How about that? Because you needed a word. <laughs> the big H. So then connect with the other which follows on yep, from check your circle yep, so yep, that yep. is the attempt that is to, that. Go find hard to do veil. though i mean actually aa would be one of the most i've got friends in recovery mm. and they really do now have if i go because to a that, christening or a yay. birthday party the mixture of people around the table yeah. and some of my poshest friends yeah. are the ones that have ended up in trouble yes yes and and they now have a circle of friends that is astonishing, astonishing. I, you know puts puts all de- have liberal you ever been to an AA meeting? i haven't no I, honestly just as a case study go to one yes. fascinating because it does that it gives it you that, that. Uh, unavoidable connect unavoidable with the connect and also often those are the people that you have been most honest with. Mm. You know, they, your friends that are in AA that now have this diverse set of groups. They've probably shared things with those people that their own family don't yes, know, that yes, their wives have. and husbands don't know. So totally. Um, I don't think it's that hard to do. I think it's it's hard to do if you're only allowing yourself to be in your comfort zone. So i.e. maybe it is joining the PTA or not PTA or joining the association of a local state school, even if your kids don't go to that school. You know, maybe it is actually going to the mosque and asking, can I come and talk to some of your um, uh, worshippers? You know, there's loads of things that you can do to take yourself out of your comfort zone that will enable you to interact with people that are different. The wonderful thing about London is it's usually next door. Yes, of course. Yeah, you know, and outside London, maybe not so much. But in London, it's usually next door. And the other thing I also want to add is, when I talk about diversity, it's not just ethnicity or class or gender. You know, we're talking about disability. We're yes. talking about LGBTQ, age. There's so many ways to and to enrich your life and bring more diversity into well, it. Race plays a smaller part, oddly, yeah, in the book actually, than I was yeah. expecting. I don't even I, I, have I, a chapter on race. No, exactly. No. There's there's all the other others: yeah. the other man, the <laughs> other woman, the other <laughs> class. But there isn't another race no. because it's. It's well, it's intrinsic to all the other experiences, exactly. isn't it? And also, it's nuanced. You know, yes. it's funny. I had a, a debate with my publisher over that because they wanted me to do a chapter on race, and I said no because the experience of a woman of color or a Muslim woman is different to the experience mm. of a Muslim man or or a man of color. And actually, I wanted to deal with it within the context of gender. And and it yeah. makes a lot more sense that way. Mm-hmm. And that's from connect with the other to change your mind, which is recognizing yes. the things you've discussed. Celebrate difference. Yeah, I think you know. I think we should do. I think, of course, we have way more in common. No question. The fact that we're human beings. Yes. But there's also a lot that is different culturally uh, about us, and I think that's of value. I think that's something to be celebrated. There's something that you bring with from your heritage that I would bring from mine that actually makes for a richer experience in celebrating both. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Things of food oh, is yeah. the easiest way into oh, it, yeah. isn't it? Exactly. So we're doing these dinners called Diversify Dinners where we're encouraging people from different backgrounds mm. to come together and break bread. 
and then mm. finally champion the cause the cause mm. being integration yes yeah so yeah. you you how do you do that how do by you... spreading the word so right. telling people telling your friends telling your colleagues and getting them to do the six steps as well so you're on a proper mission yeah yeah why you well i think um i think a number of reasons i think one um i think my life represents much of what i'm talking about in the book um i think my life is an example of uh, social mobility done well. Um, I think uh, I've been able to uh, integrate uh, with lots of different communities um, and somehow I'll find common ground. Um, and also, I think the wonderful thing about being a woman of colour and also having a job like this is you really do understand prejudice and privilege mm. uh, in equal measure so i understand mm. what it feels like to get special treatment because of the job that i do and access um but then i also understand what it feels like to be rejected for something that has that you have no control over um so i think it, it gives me quite a rounded perspective on these things. But that doesn't explain the mission, the sense of mission, this, this desire well, this, to, yeah. to change other people's lives. It's, yeah. quite, it's quite evangelical. Yeah, but I think the sense of mission is... Does that come from church? Not really. Uh, no. no, that's not from church. Your mum yeah. would say it was. <laughs> she, she, well, you should like that. <laughs> my dad too. He's actually more religious than is she he? is. But you see, you see what I mean? That, that, because yeah. there's three strands here. There's the, there's the desire... To help other people to change, the belief that you can change, and then the belief that you can help people. Change. I think I think it comes from having been fortunate enough to experience both sides. Yes. And knowing how wonderful the good side can be and wanting more people to experience that. Because it's so unnecessary. Because it's so unnecessary and it's such a waste, James. Of energy, and, opportunity. And a waste of talent. Humanity. Exactly. You know, these kids that we are throwing away may be the ones that have the solutions to some of our most serious problems. Mm. You know, I can bet you all this mess we're in with Brexit, had you had some more of those people in the room, we wouldn't be here. Mm. And I think... And I think, you know, so a perfect example would be, you know, and I'm a big Labour supporter, have been my whole life, but the Labour Party were also guilty of ignoring certain communities. Successive governments were. When Margaret Thatcher allowed so many of those jobs to be yes. shipped overseas and all of the, the mines to be closed. And, and not... the Labour Party was prepared to yeah, pretend that the problems weren't well, there well, so that they could feel comfortable. Exactly. <laughs> so that we could get those middle-class voters. Yes, of course. And so... And so I think when you sort of understand what it feels like to feel hopeless, to, to know that you are able, to know that you could really make a contribution, but you're not allowed to. It's you know, horrible. As I mentioned at the beginning that you were the fifth person to do this series. Mm. And, and it, it, I mean, obviously, we, we really want to talk to everybody that comes on, but the order in which it's happened and the first five people are also selected by circumstance. Yeah. You have your book out. Mm. And, and not only do you remind me, I mean, when Russell Brand talks about, because his new book is a new iteration of the 12 steps yeah, for different reasons yeah. to yours. Robert Webb two weeks ago talking mm. about masculinity mm -hmm. and being pigeonholed yeah. into that. But when oddly, and this might surprise you, when you were talking then, 
it, you reminded me of our third guest, our second guest, Alistair Campbell, who oh, presumably is a, a good friend, knocked yeah. about with. Mm. Because you didn't use the word, but I'm hearing a sense of duty. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. You know, and you go to, when I think about, I go to the community I grew up in and I go to my old school and I see some of the girls who had children very young and, you know, who've made a decent life for themselves sure. considering. But still... They had the ability to contribute so much more. They just didn't have the opportunity to. And I think that that is an absolute disgrace. And it just breaks my heart. We are throwing away so much talent, so much talent. Yeah. And I think when you're from my kind of background, you see it. You see it. You see how much talent gets wasted. And you even provide the data for that. Where yeah. does that figure? One hundred and twenty-seven billion pounds yeah. per year. Yeah, yeah. According to the LSE. Yeah, according to just, the LSE. Just looking at jobs that people could yes. be doing, yes. taxes be, people could exactly, be paying, yeah. contributions yes. people could be making. Yeah. If they were, what keeps yeah. you awake at night, June? Uh, what keeps me? I sleep very well. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I'm one of those few people I can sleep anywhere. When I used to do the dance floor chart on MTV, and we would film like in the middle of the night. I had to learn how to sleep anyway, so not much keeps me awake at night. But what keeps me motivated yeah. um, is just how you level the playing field. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. So that the next person coming through has it that much easier. What if checking your circle involves, as I'm sure it does with you, being friends with people who like the playing field very much as it is, thank you very much. And and it has to involve that. Yes. Because you have to change them because actually most of them are the gatekeepers. So <laughs> we got no choice on that. But, but why would they? Why, why would, would they? Because my, my, my dad sent me to public school precisely mm. so that I would do better than him because yeah. he was on the Daily Telegraph yeah. with his Yorkshire accent and he's yeah. left school at 15 and yeah. he's... These bastards flew by him, was yeah, how he saw it. And he yes. wanted to buy me the golden yes, ticket, yes. which he did. he did, yeah. But you want to you want to abolish golden tickets. That's what I want to abolish, golden tickets. And I'm all for your father doing. He had to do what he had to do, hmm. of course. Um, but I, I want to abolish the golden ticket. I, I, And I say, for those who say, oh, well, we're fine. Well, you're not. Brexit shows us you're not. Because mm. you know what? You allow things to become that unequal, we all suffer. We all suffer in the end. So, no, you're not. And actually, I think going forward, if you, I think China's a really good example. So, with China, you know, as we know, for centuries, um, Chinese culture uh, was, was in part, women were considered second class citizens. But when the whole Land Reform Act happened when, you know, Chairman Mao came into power and really wanted to to look at how to take China to that next level. They almost had to put that sexism to one side because, like, he's the one who came up with the slogan, women hold up half the sky, because he knew there was no way men could just do it alone. So therefore, they changed the law to enable women to own land, to enable women to start their own businesses. And it's, that, it's those policy changes that have helped drive China's success story and make China the powerhouse that it is today. And so what I say is what we have that uh, China doesn't have is because of our immigration policy that a lot of people are against. But actually, the wonderful thing about immigration is it also means you get the best talent from everywhere in your country, building mm. 
businesses in your country. And I think because of that, we have the opportunity to create a framework that allows everybody to contribute. And I think the country that gets that right will be unrivaled. No one will be able to match us if we get that right. You mentioned Brexit a lot of times, which yes. is normally what other you people mentioned. accuse me of. <laughs> but, but, but you, and I, I always mean, listen to you to make me feel better about Brexit. Well, I still feel, not, I feel less mad. Yeah, less, less mad. Less, less, less crazy. <laughs> yeah. Just a sort of semblance of a reality that you recognise. <laughs> But you, you were involved. You were involved in Stronger In. Just briefly, yeah. why, why did... What, <laughs> what went wrong? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what went wrong. I remember sitting in um, uh, board <laughs> meetings and we had, like, all the research through. Yeah. And, you know, it was Michael Gove's comments about who needs to listen to experts. Well, maybe in our board meeting we should have listened to Michael Gove on that one. And all of the research uh, said that people were more concerned about the economy than they were immigration. Right. And that the uh, message had to be around the economy and the fact that it was economically sound to stay with the EU um, and that that would trump people's fears around immigration. And the piece that we missed was the breakdown of so many communities who had been forgotten mm. as a result of globalization, which they somehow linked to the EU. Yes. And, and oh, to immigration exactly. to the EU. Because so many newspapers are encouraging yes, them to do that. Yes, yes. And then you had enough demagogues to sort of fan push those it over flames. The level. Precisely. And the bus. The bus was huge, I think, in, in undermining the economic yes, argument. Yes, and it was so simple. Yes. It was so simple. And I think we underestimated that. And honestly, I'll tell you, the night before, James, we had a dinner with the board. Um, George Osborne hosted it, and everybody thought we'd won. And then Sunderland came in. Yes. And like, okay. Okay. <laughs> The champagne yeah, off ice. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to need this. We're not going to need this. We're not going to need this um, in the fridge. The book's out now. <laughs> yes. It, I hadn't really realised until I met you today, mm. it's the beginning of a project, not the end yes, of the Yes, it's the beginning. The no, 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 it's just the start. So there's yeah. loads of stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, 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 totally. Final question, obvious one. Mm. Politics, I, I mean, you, you, for you as a career? Oh, oh, God. You know, someone just asked me this a minute ago, if I want to I be an I said it was MP. obvious. You know, <laughs> really? uh, if I want to be an MP, no. Why not? The answer. Do you know what? It's funny. Um, I know MPs very well. Um, you, went out, you went out with David Lammy for a while. Yeah, course, exactly. Yeah. And I have a lot of MP friends. Sure. Um, uh, it's a hard job. And you know what? They get such a hard time. It's a hard job, particularly if your constituency... Uh, uh, is one that has a lot of problems. Mm. Um, so I think there are other ways uh, to, you know, have an impact. So I like doing stuff like this and I like lobbying. You possibly will have more impact doing stuff maybe, like this than you maybe, would as a constituency maybe. MP. I love, the, I love the way you've gone for a complete unknown for the quote on the front of the book. Oh. Who's this Kofi Annan bloke? <laughs> How did, you, how did you get him to read that your book? <laughs> well, he's part of the Ghana Mafia, isn't he? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Engaging and informative highlights our common humanity. I, I'd have gone further and said highlights the importance of remembering yeah. our common humanity, Thank which we're you, kind James. of in danger of losing. June Sarpong, it's been an absolute oh, pleasure. Like Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for all that you do. Honestly, oh, we need you right out. now. You better keep out. this bit in there. <laughs> That's right. We could have gone on for hours. Yeah, so much fun. I'm joined now by the unfiltered producer, Richard, with whom I occasionally chew over the fat at the end of our interviews. I was really nervous about that one. 
Were you really? I was on the way. I, I think she's a really impressive woman. But on the way mm. here, it sort of occurred to me that unlike the other unfiltered guests that we've had so far, I, d I don't have a, a, a deep and abiding relationship with her body of work. Mm -hmm. You weren't a big T, uh, T4 watcher in your... The, the, well, in your I, I kind of... I, I don't think we'd have got an hour out of her T4 years, would we? Well, luckily she wrote a really interesting book. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And amazing how now that we've done six, even though I think I introduced this one as five, didn't I, at the top? Possibly. Um, it, we've done six. There were loads of parallels with, with previous ones. I didn't mention Lily Allen while talking to June because mm -hmm. we conducted that conversation before the Lily Allen one had gone out. But, mm. but actually, there were a lot of parallels there as well with the duty and uh, the, the, the social mobility and a real concern about People who aren't getting the breaks that they deserve. Yeah. I mean, it's been kind of a theme throughout all of the... Unintentionally. Right as well. Yeah. Are you telling people that? Or are we still pretending <laughs> this is that what this I'm is sending all, out in the briefing notes? This is the master out. plan. This is, <laughs> Something it's all like there. That, yeah. oh, crikey, who'll be next? Tune in next week <laughs> to find out. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe.